This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, I think it holds up, right? Yeah, I mean, even, I so. <laughs> even after so many years. And that's one of the things that I would like to, uh, to bring up you know, as part of the discussion. Why does the film hold up? Why does it still kind of... Uh, uh, convinced to, to some extent. There are seven versions of this film, right? Some of them came out simply because uh, it was an issue of domestic distribution versus foreign distribution. But the film was had kind of a tortured uh, beginning. Uh, to begin with, uh, Ridley Scott had been uh, devastated uh, shortly before the beginning of this film by the loss of his brother. So the idea of uh, uh, kind of uh, life termination, the idea of, of uh, expectancy and uh, the probability of, of uh, the possibility of extending life, I mean, that was kind of uh, something that he used you know, also in the film. But the, um, uh, the uh, Ridley Scott was uh, looking for a project, in other words, to keep himself occupied and ended up uh, engaging with a particular company at the beginning um, and then the company dropped after spending a couple of million dollars on the pre-production and the preparation for the film. They, they dropped the project, so it had to go back to the um, uh, lad, right? You see that at the very beginning is the lad um, and uh, these uh, producers, these uh, uh, Hong Kong producers that came up at the last minute. Uh, and uh, it, it, the film eventually uh, started to go, and it cost about uh, $28, 29000000 million and uh, it made back about uh, $33 million, which is basically breaking almost even. I mean, not, not much. I mean, the film was not very successful when it came out. Uh, and uh, um, the film was re-released in a different version. The original version had a voiceover narration, and it was inspired by uh, some kind of a noir Robert Mitchum tone, right? And Harrison Ford, who apparently was against this narration idea, uh, actually turned the narration into a joke. Uh, it was literally like thrown away with the noir, you know, uh, kind of disdain. Uh, you know, the narrator was this kind of, uh, 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 you know, terribly uh, bogarty uh, tone. So he, uh, the, the voiceover narration, and the ending was different. In fact, this is one of the few director's cut that got shorter after you know, the, uh, the director got around to redoing it. Because the ending actually had a um, kind of a happy flight. Uh, Rachel and Deckard go away off into the sunrise. The first time you see greenery, the first time you see the sun in the entire film. They fly away on one of those you know, machines. And uh, um, you actually see down this beautiful field, this beautiful nature which was a shot, not even you know, directed by Scott. It was borrowed from the beginning of The Shining. It was an outtake. No, no, seriously, I mean, I'm not making it up. Uh, it was an outtake from the beginning of The Shining. They just recycled it. You, know, it was, you need to see greenery? Okay, greenery it is. You know, and, and, that, and that was the idea. So the director went back and took out the ending. Uh, the ending was supposed, to, uh, was supposed to 
be what you see right now, right? And he called it the European ending, right? The one that doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, and it was just the door closing, right? And the possible confirmation that uh, the Deckard is a, a replicant, right? Uh, because we see the little uh, origami unicorn, and uh, we understand that only somebody who is privy to his imagination and to the memories implanted in him could possibly have guessed that he had a dream about a unicorn. Uh, so Gaff, of course, you know, is the one who knows everything. Is the kind of the narrator, you know, uh, the Deus ex machina in the in the film. Um, so the the film had this kind of strange genesis. It came out again, right, in ninety. In 1990 and then in 1991, and I was at the New World at the time uh, because I had seen the film when it came out and it was okay. Then I went back to the New World. I had to park five blocks <laughs> away, and there was a line sneaking around the New World in 1991. And I figured, yeah, that's, it's going to be back, right? I mean, the film is going to be successful. Uh, and then, of course, the latest, the 1997 edition, the, the, sorry, 2007, 17, 2007. 2019, one of those, right? <laughs> We're in 2019 almost, right? So uh, the 2007 edition was the one that, that you guys saw. Uh, so the genesis of the film and, uh, you know, the, the convoluted genesis of the film. But the film, I think, it really uh, holds up uh, for, for many reasons. Uh, first of all, as we were saying in the series, is kind of a noir, you know, uh, idea of a film uh, projected into the future but rooted in the city, right? And, and we were talking about the city, you know, and how much of the city you see from the New World, you know, to the Eames, uh, you know, uh, uh, houses and to the, the, um, the landscapes of Los Angeles, you know, to that opening uh, shot incredibly, which I just, you know, was thinking it looks like Long Beach now uh, because it's so crisp. No, so you can see all the uh, all the details. Uh, so uh, the the city is you know the protagonist of the film, but. Not only is the city, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, we, we went from Chinatown to the other Chinatown. I mean, now this, this one is much more rundown. Uh, and uh, the city is this kind of Daedalus of places. Uh, but also, uh, interestingly enough, the notion of time becomes a, uh, a labyrinth. Uh, time is unclear in the film. We never know what time it is. Uh, how many days is, is this supposed to be uh, taking place? And across how many days? Hours? One night? Two days? There are some cross cuts, right? We see Deckard looking over his, uh, uh, his window, his balcony, and then we see Pris at the bottom, right, uh, running around in circles. Is that a cross cut? Are they supposed to be taking place at the same time? Where is Leon? Uh, while uh, while Roy is somewhere else, what is Pris? Uh, while Rachel goes up to uh, Deckard House, so you have you know this sense of complete destruction of the linearity of time. This is literally like all of Scott's film a film about the decline of Western civilization or the destruction, the end of Western civilization. Even time, even linear time has been challenged. Uh, so I, I think it, it works for so many reasons. Say something about the city. You are, you are the, uh, the city man. Oh, well, um, 
Two things. I'll get to the city in a second, but you mentioned The Shining. So, of course, the one other connection from The Shining, of course, is Joe Turkle's work. Right. As Eldon Tyrell, who you probably recognize as the right. bartender from The Shining. Right. right. Um, and, of course, both are Warner Brothers films. And so there's that, there's that, right. that connection right. between all those. Um, the city is an interesting, obviously, connection. One of the things that's really interesting looking at this movie um, is it was shot and released in 1982. And it's about 2019 Los Angeles. And if you know anything about Los Angeles in 2015, this is about as far away as Los Angeles is in 2015 as you can imagine. Number one, there's just nothing but rain, right? That already is a dramatic difference from downtown Los Angeles. So when I moved to Los Angeles in 1996, it actually was the winter of El Nino. So it rained like crazy, the kind of rain that inspired, I think, Paul Thomas Anderson to make Magnolia, which in which right. it constantly rained, right. Right. which would have been a recent memory. That's a distant memory in right. 2015. Um, that's one thing about that city. The other thing about the city, of course, is that it reflects somewhat of Hong Kong um, more right. than it reflects necessarily Los Angeles. But you have to know something about Los Angeles in 1982, that it was a, um, a transitional moment for downtown. Traditionally, Los Angeles and down, downtown was a booming center from the 1910s through the 1940s, when like many urban areas had a period of decline um, beginning in the 1960s and 1970s. And so Los Angeles was changing its, its, its ethnic makeup in the 1970s, and it's reflected in this kind of dystopic vision that Ridley right. Scott presents of what kind of um, uh, this sort of... Uh, huge waves of migration which would change both the linguistic and ethnic makeup of what was right. presented as Los Angeles but as much inspired by um, Times Square of course you see the Pan Am building which those right. of us who went to New York when it was still there um, that's the Pan Am building which you see in Los Angeles you see the kind of Times Square and Tokyo driven um, marquees and, and graphic um, Trinitron displays. You also see this interesting mixture of kind of um, Mayan and Aztec as well as Frank Lloyd Wright inspired architecture that's, that you, it's both interior and exterior right. that reflects both the history and contemporary landscape of LA. Including um, the Ennis House, right? I mean, the, the, yeah, yeah, of course, in the Ennis House. And then you also have the, um, the famous Tyrell Building, right. which is, um, by the way, that's one of the things I wanted to say too about the enduring legacy of this film. Um, one of the things that you have to remember, and this is for those of you who are under 25, this is not a digitally created landscape you're looking at. These are almost all models. And um, I was, uh, previous to being here many, many years ago, curator of the collection at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York, and we have the Tyrell Building, well, I shouldn't say we, I don't work there anymore, but when I was there, we had the Tyrell Building inside the museum. And when I say we had the building, I mean it was this big. So the Tyrell building, which you see, is a model, and it's about this big. That's how intricate those models are. And one of the reasons why this film just works is because you have the sense that it's a real universe. This is not um, video game aesthetics. It's the sense that these are a, this is a real built environment, and in every way, um, from the candy glass shattering to... Right to the construction of buildings, to the fans, everything you see, for the most part, is either physicality or Douglas Trumbull's right. famous effects, um, Trumbull who you worked on 2001 and many other films, yeah. um, Showscan, etc. So you have this kind of incredible space and landscape that's built into this. Um, it's also at the, at the real crux of Harrison Ford's career. 
You know, he's doing Empire Strikes Back in 1980. He's doing Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981. He does this film in 1982, and then he does Witness in 1984, I believe. So it's also at this real mm-hmm. moment where right. he's still emoting, right. which is nice, right? Like, he still remembers how to smile and make faces. Um, and so you also get him in his prime. You get Ridley Scott coming off of Alien. So he's at his prime. Um, you have the beginning of Daryl Hannah's career. Right. Um, Sean Young before people didn't want to work with her. Right. I mean, everybody's sort of at their peak. Well, Sean Young had a, a nervous breakdown. Yes. And uh, and uh, Daryl Hannah was, you know, is the uh, priest, the replicant who jumps, loops. Uh, and she was very f- physical. I mean, you know, this kind of uh, uh, naivete and physicality, this kind of tender and yet, you know, strong. I mean, that becomes part of her persona. I mean, she continues, mm-hmm. you know, this, this kind of look. I mean. Yeah, and this is before she does Splash, which right. I think is 1983. Right. Yeah, the other person I haven't mentioned, of course, is Rucker Hauer. Right. And Hauer's coming off of um, Ketcha Tipple, Turkish Her Delight, yes. and of course, Soldier of Orange right. for um, Paul Verhoeven. And it's part of the beginning of that kind of Dutch new wave that begins right. to come to Hollywood, right. where you get Paul Verhoeven, Jan de Bont, Rucker Hauer, right. um, and Jeroen Crabbe, all of right. whom come, begin to come to Hollywood in the 1980s, but actually Rucker <laughs> is really the first one who gets here. And, and, and Rutger Hauer was the only uh, casting that was not uh, kind of a, a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott wanted him right away after he saw him in, uh, in Verhoeven's films. Yes, and, of course, he also works in this kind of way because, of course, he's the sort of the model of Aryan perfection right. against this landscape of, of mixed ethnicity, which I think is partly what Scott is, is, yes. is alluding to, um, not only in his sort of um, the Jesus imagery you get at the end, of course, with the, the, right. the nail through the hand and all that. But you have this whole sensation that, um, that Hauer is this kind of pure superhuman that is both at once idyllic and also quite scary, right. which I think has a kind of resonance for a Brit right. in the 1970s, right. 1980s, make, right. you know, casting a Dutchman as a kind of classic right. pure Aryan that, that Hauer was. But he's a scene stealer, and that's the other thing to remember. I mean, the only guy you kind of, who can take the tension away from Harrison Ford really is Rucker Hauer. It's just a kind of compelling performance. I always think of Harrison Ford as a reactor rather than an actor. <laughs> Somebody is good, right? Yeah. He can react to a good actor. It <laughs> certainly happened later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, but there are um, there are so many things about this film. Um, I mean, for instance, I mean, I noticed, um, and I think it's always generational. There are those very, very melodramatic moments in this film, right. and the reactions always break down somewhat along age lines. Mm-hmm. Like um, our generation is more used to. Melodrama, pure melodrama without any hint of irony. And you've, those of you who are younger than, say, 25, have somewhat been raised on a kind of cynicism and um, where anything that looks melodramatic is actually to set up for a joke. But that level of sincerity was actually, number one, it's a hallmark of these kinds of films and certainly of those kinds of scenes. So it comes across and you could, you could sort of feel the difference. And I've I've been doing this long enough teaching that I kind of know what happens when these kind of scenes come up. Like, I read them as straight and everyone else is waiting for the punchline. But I think that's also why um, it kind of still works because there's a purity to those moments, even if they feel whatever, cheesy or something now, that there is a sincerity that I think for me is almost like nostalgic when I deal with it because I remember movies that made me want to go there, even if it's hard 
to get right. there now. Right. But in a sense, I mean, it's part of also the uh, the kind of noir melodrama mm-hmm. too. I Absolutely. Mean, this, this, uh, and which is which is part of the controversial uh, moment when uh, he forces Rachel right uh, against the wall and says, you know, you, and, and yep. kind of teaches her right, right how to be emotional but only towards him right. right i mean that's he's training his replicant in other words right and in a way like you kind of you 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 go with it because it's Harrison Ford right. you know if it's someone else maybe you get a little nervous right. about the sequence but right. um, i mean i think that's also what it is when you cast people right. you know yeah. ford comes with a certain credibility like he's not going to physically violate Sean Young any right. more than he's going to push her right. to try to elicit an emotion. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, but it's also a trope of film noir. I mean, the idea of, you know, the, the guy who at some point, you know, is going to make the femme fatales, you know, either come... Yeah. You know, cross the line yeah. or, or, or go away. Yeah. Uh, so um, the film has also been, and then I'm going to have to open it up, but uh, the film has also been uh, used um, um, by and commented upon. I was going to actually look, yes, all right, uh, by many, many uh, uh, scholars. In fact, uh, Robin Wood wrote uh, extensively on the film, but he had seen the version with the happy ending. Right with the, and the voiceover and he, and I quote he says the more I see Blade Runner the more I am impressed by its achievement and the more convinced of its failure uh, because he resented the fact that it had a happy ending and that it had this kind of reassuring uh, he talked about the class distinctions and the fact that the film is about slavery mm-hmm. uh, is about the replicants right I mean mm-hmm. and and two of the replicants say you know uh, what this is what it feels to be afraid right. This is what it feels to be constantly experiencing fear and to live in fear, right? And uh, and that you know becomes becomes the issue. But uh, um, Slavoj Zizek used it to uh, discuss the cards, you know, uh, the cards work. I mean, and he was uh, he compared, of course, you know, the name of Decker to the card. I mean, and and uh, Priest at some point says, you know. I, I think, therefore, I am, and uh, you know, this is what it means to be human. So, I think the film, you know, for better or for worse, hitting all the right or the wrong spots, it says something to everyone, right? It has this kind of perhaps cheesy philosophy: what does it mean to be human, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the usual uh, stuff. It also, you know, has this kind of uh, Christian metaphors, visual metaphors, and to me, the most compelling one is uh, the one of of the witness. Right? Why is Deckard alive at the end of the film? Because in order to die, for a supreme being to die, you know, he needs a witness. He needs those moments not to be lost in the rain, which apparently is a Rutger Hauer line, right? Yeah. He uh, wrote it, you know, he wrote it up as as he was uh, preparing for for the role. Uh, so uh, the idea of witnessing, and in the version with the voiceover, Deckard would. Uh, kind of explain vaguely maybe he loved life and now he saved me something ridiculous right uh, but I think the whole idea that that uh, uh, the expiration moment needs the witness to to exist you know to to remain right in the world in a sense um, so it works in, at, at so many levels and uh, I think it still works today so maybe we can yeah do you mind uh, if I just say two very quick yeah, things absolutely well 
two things. I mean, one, of course, is that we have to look at the lineage of the film and then, of course, its influence. Right. I mean, very quickly, of course, right. Metropolis being the number one and right. Eldon Terrell being a kind of Joe Frederson figure from, the, from that. Of course, it's got a Frankenstein kind of lineage. And right. then, in terms of influence, you can look at a, a, a million films, everything, including the recent Ex Machina to uh, Alex Proyas's Dark City, even right. Russell Mulcahy's very crazy right. Highlander 2, which has a very, which has like every single shot feels like a, some kind of bad rip off of, of Blade Runner. Um, it's just one of those absolutely indelible films that everyone references. So that's one of the things. And, and about this release version, I mean, um, this is one of those films and, and that I have seen in so many ways, in so many contexts, in so many versions. I mean, the first way I saw it, of course, was on Laserdisc, which was with the narration. Right. Right. And I actually love both versions. I mean, I, I, you know, they're just totally different films in a weird right. way because you know, that monotone narration that Harrison Ford hated, uh, and he, of course, he and Ridley Scott fought vociferously on that set. Right. So this is one of the things that they fought against the studio and lost, so that was forced to have the narration. But... I remember in 1996 or 7, I can't remember the exact year, I heard there was no internet then, so you had to kind of hear through the grapevine. Imagine that. Um, I heard that there was going to be a week of the Blade Runner answer print at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. And it was like an entire city visited Hollywood for a week. I mean, every single show almost yes. felt like it was sold out. People were running across town to see the Cinerama Dome, which back then was just a theater. There was no, it was just the Cinerama Dome and a giant parking lot. And then um, two years ago, I saw Blade Runner actually at the Million Dollar downtown, which is the theater you see in the background of the Bradbury building. They actually showed Blade Runner in the Million Dollar, where it never showed before, across the street from the Bradbury building, which was kind of amazing. You know, which it's is this, now a law firm. <laughs> yeah, well, the, yeah, the Bradbury building is right. It's a, it's, it's, it's like a tourist attraction. Offices. It's a series of, uh, and, and LA police offices are there as yeah. well. Um, but the thing about that, that one shot, and this is the last thing I say, I promise, is that on the marquee, you'll notice is that it's Spanish. Because at that time, the Million Dollar Theater was a Spanish language theater in 1982. Right. So there's all these pieces of sci-fi that I love, right? The best pieces of sci-fi are they're what's happening now, but with a nod towards the future. And you get all these little pieces of Los Angeles, as it was in 82, right. even though it's all about... Yeah. Uh, 2019. It's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, I think you can uh, really navigate the film in so, so many different ways. So uh, let's have the, uh, uh, your questions and your comments. Hi. Um, there's two points uh, that I would like you to comment upon. Um, the first one, um, I find very interesting how the replicants are pursued for the lack of humanity but they are the ones that show the more empathy toward each other and develop not emotion, but this kind of proximity, while humans are pictured as a, you know, this mass this, uh, in this dirty city where there's no sense of social cohesion, uh, individualistic uh, bunch of people that just happen to live each other. There's this kind of promiscuity, but it's a you know, a gloomy, nightmarish kind of city. And again, to follow up upon the idea of humanity, uh, the replicants test um, for humanity stresses upon the relation with animals and the question where Leon, um, you know, gets, um, gets stressed upon is about his behavior um, upon, uh, with animal relationship. And I find the connection with the end, where he releases the bird, uh, very interesting. 
And I was wondering if you had anything to, to comment upon that. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, uh, well, I mean, probably Zajek would uh, look at the cart again and the uh, comments that uh, the cart uh, made on the nature of the soul of the animals, which he denied, right? Uh, and the idea that in the film you're supposed to see the uh, androids or the cyborgs, depending how much you know, pieces of human beings do they have. Um, you're supposed to see them as the ones who have developed emotion while humankind has lost it. Right. The, the whole point is that they are the ones who have learned to feel, and uh, they also have learned that uh, because their lives are going to be so short, that feeling will not have an outlet. And so the pressure is, you know, between learning to empathize and feel, and they have a community. There are four of them. And, and uh, you know, when Priest says there are only two of us, right? And, and then you really get a sense of the loss that they have experienced. Um, and then, you know, of course, Deckard is supposed to be the unfeeling, and everybody else is supposed to be the unfeeling one. And you, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, kind of juxtaposition, because also uh, the one that is the most unfeeling is Tyrell, the head of the corporation, right, who treats them like skin jobs, the way in which, uh, you know, the, the, the captain says, you know, they're just skin jobs. Uh, the, uh, he treats them like skin jobs. He actually pushes Rachel out. He builds her to feel, and then, you know, he discards her, and she's supposed to be eliminated like uh, the other replicant. So you're absolutely right. And, uh, and when Roy goes to visit his maker, literally, right, uh, his maker, he finds that this kind of demigod who lives at the top of a ziggurat is uh, somebody who is blind. And, you know, the theme of vision, of course, the motif of, of, of sight runs through the film, but also as a metaphor. Um, you know, who is, who is able to see and who is blind to the effects of what they've done and, uh, and the consequences of their actions. And you can see, I mean, obviously, you know, the, 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 what Scott intended as a, as a kind of critis- criticism to capitalism, you know, the consequences of creating uh, these objects and infusing them with life uh, that are unforeseeable and they are not the consequences, you know, one, you know, the, the Tyrell Corporation does not take responsibility for. Uh, so I, I think you're, you're very right. They are a community. Humans are an undefined mass of people. Uh, you see glimpses, right? You see at some point uh, the Hare Krishna, or you see you know little glimpses, but it's more like like a joke. Um, you see in the background an Orthodox, somebody's you know wearing stuff like an Orthodox Jew, but it's all kind of a joke. I mean, these people don't really uh, don't really matter. They don't ever really have a community. So you're right. So if Deckard is a replicant, why doesn't he have like super strength and agility like the other ones? They're all models, right? So Pris is a pleasure model, uh, meaning what? A prostitute, meaning somebody who is supposed to just be used and abused. Uh, and then one is a worker model. I mean, you know, the uh, Leon is supposed to be able to have strength. And uh, Roy is the combat model, right? And uh, Decker could be what? The investigating model? <laughs> I mean, the guy, you know. And, and one of the things that always strikes me about that film is also uh, when he's investigating and he's using 
what now looks like a video game, right? Now it looks like you have uh, a, a series of, of, of you know, uh, images that can be explored by entering in depth, you know? And at the time, I, mean, it's, uh, I, I think it's just fantastic uh, to imagine that somebody could imagine that. In fact, the uh, special effects actually are what sold uh, Philip K. Dick to uh, to the film, right? Because he resented it dramatically that they had not discussed the script with him. But after he saw Trumbull's special effects and after he saw the images, he was convinced that that was his vision. But uh, yeah, so Deckard could just be a replicant that doesn't have many skills except the ones you know of of uh, having to chase uh, and investigate. Uh, he has a big gun. I think it's interesting that you say that the like Los Angeles is a character in the film because like compared to Collateral in Chinatown in which they're moving through the city and you can kind of map it out through the streets it seems like they just appear in different locations right. here so right. you kind of don't understand the film temporally or spatially right that's a very good point yes um yeah, that's, a, that's intentional. I mean, in a way, um, because it is science fiction, it's supposed to be defamiliarized, right? It's supposed to take pieces of the Los Angeles you might know and try to imagine a dystopic future. So it's not, like you said, I mean, with Collateral, you are literally going through the back alleys and the downtowns and the highways of an actual city. This city is largely a construction using elements of... 1982 Los Angeles, but also taking pieces of, like I said, Hong Kong, Manhattan, Tokyo, and imagining a kind of um, global mishmash placed into a very different Los Angeles that if you're from there or if you've spent a lot of time in L.A., it looks like, right, it looks like nothing you can imagine, right? You mentioned, like, the oil fields of Long Beach and um, the maybe downtown Broadway where the million dollar is. Outside of those locations and the Ennis House and a few other places, it's really not like L.A. you know. So I think I wasn't here for all of your, uh, your screenings, unfortunately. But having said that, you know, Chinatown is an historically based film. It's situated within actual locations and a real Chinatown that's in Los Angeles. Collateral is based on a very contemporary Los Angeles that exists, looks almost exactly like that today. This is um, like sci-fi or fantasy. It really is a almost completely um, fractured and assembled Los Angeles that will never exist, but that's sort of how these kinds of films work. I don't know if that's the question that you're asking, but if you're trying to say, why doesn't this look anything like the Los Angeles I know, it's because Ridley Scott is sort of painting on a canvas that, that he doesn't really, um, that he's inventing. But, but there is a point, though, I, I think that is kind of interesting because we never get to see any connection among even fictional buildings. There could be, mm-hmm. right, a, a perspective or something, yeah. but we never get, I mean, as a, you were addressing the, the issue of space, the way I, I, I address the issue of time, right? This, this place seems to be, uh, people, yeah, really seem to appear uh, at a no time, no space, there is no connection, no. Uh, but, but but having said that, he, he localizes it in two very famous uh, Los Angeles landmarks. Number one, right. Union Station, which is the location right. of the police headquarters. Right. And then the nexus of the Million Dollar and the Bradbury, where you spent quite a lot of time. Um, what happens is, is that all those sort of model and process shots, which are in the exteriors, those are the 
that's the what is this place? This doesn't look like L.A. But all of the a lot of the larger shots we spend time with are actual buildings. Um, but 97 floors, maybe that's part of it, right? The 97th floor of Deckard's apartment house makes very little sense because I don't know what the tallest building in Los Angeles is, but I can't imagine it's any more than 56 floors. Um, I mean, having worked in the 34th floor of a 36th floor office building in Universal City, that was about as tall as you'd want to be in an earthquake, which I was. Um, so even So the idea of a 97th floor in Los Angeles seems totally crazy, um, and that's why, you know, the idea that this is somehow anything related to a real Los Angeles, I think, is also, you know, is also just like, I think, I think he's, he's not just, it's not like San Andreas, right? Like, he's not gesturing to a kind of fictionalized Los Angeles. Like, Los Angeles is really a postmodern construction. It's really like, um, it's as far away, I think, I don't really think he's saying... This will be Los Angeles in 2019. It's this. Right, it's right a, because also the inspiration for the film was a, a series of uh, French comic books. One of the inspiration for the design called Metal Hurlant, uh, which is the screaming metal that was published in America as heavy metal, uh, the comic books. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it's Edward Hopper is uh, the heavy metal, is, you know, is all these Mebuse, you know, design things that I used to collect when I was a kid. And, uh, well, actually, uh, yeah, it was, uh, they started in 74, so I was not that much of a kid. Um, I used to collect them, and then I lost them all. Uh, and uh, when, I, when I got to the States, I tried to collect them again, and I found out they were heavily censored. Um, all the, you know, all the, the, the body parts. I mean, you, you could actually see in uh, some of uh, Rutger Hauer character, uh, some of these characters from the comic books. They are very physical. They're always, they were always designed with uh, biceps and body parts, very often naked, you know, and uh, not, not in the United States. Uh, so that, that, was, uh, that was part of the inspiration. And so it's a completely fictional, literally designed, drawn, right, world. So, yeah. It's also a paranoid view. Yeah. It's a paranoid view of Los Angeles. I mean, it's like, it's like a white flight nightmare yeah. that reflects a lot of the white flight that happened in Los Angeles right. in the 60s and 70s. That the went downtown down, in particular. Right, right. that went, down, went to Orange County that flew right. into the valley or the west side of Los Angeles. And so you get also that kind of piece of this by looking at it. It reflects this kind of paranoia where when I moved to L.A. in 96 from the East Coast, um, I would go downtown all the time because it was a great place to go. The movie theaters were open. It was kind of a fascinating place. And I would talk to people all the time who had never been downtown. Like, they had lived there their whole life. Right. And once they went, there was, like, something. I mean, I don't know, a show or their car broke down, you know? And, and that was it. So, like, L.A., downtown L.A. had become, like, a white nightmare for people out of right. sheer paranoia, fear, and history. And so that's somewhat reflected in the way that this film yep. comes up with this idea that you would go down there and you don't speak the language, and there's right. all this exoticism, and I think there's a lot of that usual kind of you know, fear of, um, of Asian cultures and of people who look different. So everything in there is, yeah. is partly what's also happening. So it's maybe that's a kind of answer to your question about the why it doesn't look like Los Angeles. It looks like this other Los Angeles that people who spent all their time in 1981 in Beverly Hills would remember about why they all left downtown L.A. in the 1960s, <laughs> you know? So... Yes, I was wondering, did you get a presupposition of uh, instant justice 
by the sword with uh, sort of the absence of any legal process in the uh, there was no attempt to capture the androids. It was sort of death on sight. Uh, what do you think about that angle of it? Well, that would have been the, the slavery angle, right? I mean, the idea that they are property. Uh, more human than human is the motto of the Tyrell Corporation, but the first thing it says is commerce, right? We are about commerce, and these people are our property. We can do anything we want with them. Uh, so the whole idea of slavery is, is brought up again, you know, glaringly. Um, and uh, there is no other law except the one that protects the owner uh, of the object. Uh, and so these people who are sentient human beings, you know, whatever it is, imitations of human beings, more human than human, uh, and yet, nevertheless, they have to be, you know, subjected to the uh, laws of, of uh, property rights. Um, so... You know, one of the reasons I think that this film works and is still resonant in the ways that a lot of films maybe contemporarily aren't is that this doesn't have, like, there isn't a superstructure bad guy you have to overcome. You know, there isn't necessarily, like, an evil force, you know, kind of like a DC Comics Marvel evil force that if only they can beat them back, they'll win the day. These are existential questions, as you're raising, and I think that's one of the reasons why the film is open-ended, it has a larger question, and that's why the best sci-fi isn't about battling monsters or aliens or a rogue force within your agency or whatever the usual construct is. You know, at the end, you know, Roy can destroy Deckard in three seconds, and he doesn't, because he's not ultimately fighting Roy, Deckard. He's ultimately fighting mortality and his own sense of existence. And so it's why these films, honestly, they're just, they can, you can return to them because there isn't a, a kind of foreclosed narrative conclusion. This film has ended because they win. Right. The film ends because the film is over, but the questions remain. And in a sense, that's why these kinds of films, and it's in Metropolis and it's in some of the best sci-fi films, that even if it's narratively ended, the questions linger um, and I think that's just a different question than you're asking, but I think that's why um, all of the plot points are almost sometimes even secondary to the larger questions that it brings up. And that's what I find sometimes doesn't work as well in terms of asking people to return to them because you kind of know how Iron Man ends, you know, but the questions, I don't know if they continue. But with a film like this, this is the question people return to, you know, what is the, the notion of, of, of existence, of humanity, of the soul? Um, when are you more human than human? What do you imbue life or um, uh, when do you become a, a salient sentient being? Right. What is the, the legal f- structure? This is all the Asimov kind of questions around robotics and et cetera that's been explored in things like you know, AI and Bicentennial Man more contemporarily. Those are the questions I think people ultimately want to ask, and like this new movie, Ex Machina, asks the same questions. You know, at what point are we subservient to them, and at what point do they build in these kinds of constraints that keep us the, the power structure of this whole relationship? So, well, in a sense, I mean, the film came out uh, the same week that E.T. Right. Uh, came yeah. out, which was one of the reasons why you know, people went to see E.T. in droves. Right. Uh, you know. But I think you're raising a great point because that's kind of what happened to sci-fi. Right. You know, is that, um, that sci-fi became family-friendly 
it became driven by right. ancillary merchandise, the requirement for family-friendly audiences. Right. This movie is total death to a 10-year-old. Like, you know, like if you're a 10-year-old and you're going to watch this movie and you hear all about Blade Runner, you're likely, not this 10-year-old, but many 10-year-olds are going to watch this yeah. and go, I don't know what this is, right? It doesn't have the kind of longevity of an E.T. or um, and, and even like something like Aliens. It's just, as, we, as we're talking about, it's, it's a more philosophical film. It's a slower film. And E.T. Right. E. was a perfect um, antidote to 1941, Spielberg's somewhat um, problematic production that he did previous to this, and it's a much more family-friendly version of Close Encounters, which was closer in a way to the kind of existential questions. And so E.T. was a huge family-friendly bonanza um, that kind of set Spielberg on that course for his career. I mean, it had already been done with Raiders of the Lost Ark, but... And, and, yeah, I mean, that was part of the competition was this kind of, you know, mindless little film about, you know, kid, uh, uh, kids and uh, kid monsters and so on and so forth, right? I mean, everything very friendly. Uh, there are no monsters here, but it's Tyrell, basically, that, you know, turns out to be, you know, the most monstrous construction. Um, so... I think that's, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's why the film continues to live, right? I mean, there's... Yeah, and it's a perfect 80s film because 80s sci-fi is so often about corporations and about, like you know, from RoboCop um, even on to, if you go into um, Total Recall in 1990, it's about the corporate CEO who is devoid of humanity, who is about capital and consumption and exploitation and so this kind of sends that whole thing, and it's in Alien too. Right. Um, so it sends that whole, um, the whole genre in a way. In that period, it's all about the corporate uh, structure of this, and the way in which it becomes global, it right. becomes systematized, and the way in which capital and business and corporations systematize exploitation. And thus, you're looking not only for the humanity in cyborgs, but you're looking for the humanity in the CEO, and finding it so often devoid, as you see with Tyrell. Right. You know, it's a Tyrell Corporation, and Tyrell is himself a corporation. Right. You know, um, you mentioned all these different versions and stuff, and part of my ignorance at any point in this question, but I was born in the '90s. Um, like you offered '82, '86, 2007. Why is this film? Why do they keep remaking it or redoing it or releasing it with the narrative with Harrison Ford? What I mean, besides money, like what's the purpose of doing that? As opposed to oh, someone remaking the film completely in 2007. What do you What do you mean besides money? <laughs> <laughs> um, but why? I mean, why did all that stuff happen? I I don't hear about that. Specific. Well, part of it at the beginning, there were two different versions, only because one had more violence and the other one has uh, had a few cuts, uh, and that was for different markets. But then uh, the 1990, the uh, see, I think it, it is commensurate with the power of the director, right, and the fact that this was a project the director cared about. Um, and, of course, the re- every time the film is re-released, uh, there is a new expectation, right? There is the, oh, we're going to have to see what they really meant uh, by this film. So the 90s one had, uh, I, if I remember correctly, there were two little pieces of uh, uh, voiceover narration. There was a moment at the end and the moment at the beginning, and then they had taken it out in the middle. Uh, but then 
the um, th then of course you know when Ridley Scott wanted to have finally the last word on the film and cleaned it up and and remastered it and re-released it. So, but it is money uh, essentially, right? When you are re-releasing something, um, people buy it again, and it's in a new on a new platform, and and uh, it's going to be you know it's 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 basically um, the the money has already been spent, right? So you are you are going to redo it that way. My memory of this whole thing is that there was, I think it was like a, there was a 10th anniversary done in 1992, right. Right. and there was going to be, um, there was something where the old version was out there and was going to be um, remastered for probably what would have been Laserdisc or a VHS we have copy. It. Yeah, we have it. We yeah. Have the and so in '92 they did one version. And then all of these versions were running around. Like, I'm telling you, like, I saw an answer print that supposedly came from who knows where at the Cinerama Dome. And there are five versions available on the Blu-ray, if I'm correct, from 2007. There are everything from a work print, an answer print, the original version, the special edition, right. um, all of which, you know, Ridley worked on. Several of them disowned others, but they're all appeared there. Um, the reason for these things is, number one, as you said so eloquently, um, you know, you bought the LP, why not buy the tape, why not buy the CD, why not download it on iTunes? You know, the, most of these studios are, are essentially legacy distributors. They make very little original content, and they're somewhat, used to be somewhat reliant on you buying new versions of the same thing you already own. They're unfortunately, they lost that business when they lost out on the digital game. And so now you stream everything or rip it, and so they have to find other ways to make money. But it used to be, for us old people, the idea was to get us to continue to buy the same thing over and over again, which is how it led to the whole double dipping. You know, they do the version, they do the director's version, that's the whole thing. But it's worse than what you just <laughs> asked about, because... I hope I'm not destroying everyone's dreams by telling you this, but next year they're going to begin production on Blade Runner 2. Right. So, um, so if you were ready for your childhood and mine to be destroyed, that's going to happen next year. Ridley Scott will not be involved. He was actually attached to the project for many years, and I don't know if it was um, right. his recent... Um, streak of yeah. misses, or whether or not it's his past it's, it's with Prometheus. It's. I think it's Prometheus. I think. Right. I think that, and else. I think he's kind of. He's turned a little poisonous for the box office, yeah. and I think you know he has a history, not positive, with Harrison Ford, and Ford is a more important right. um, part of Blade Runner Two than Ridley Scott is. Yeah, one so, of the things we didn't mention is that apparently they hated each other for the duration of the shooting. And many and, years after. Uh, yes, and, and after. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Harrison Ford resented the 50 days in the rain or something, which was, you know, kind of understandable. Yeah. Uh, he's always wet. Uh, throughout the entire film, basically, uh, and that was you know that was like too 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 heavy a load, uh, but yes, so basically uh, Harrison Ford, as you were saying, is the most bankable star, mm -hmm. so um, scott um, it's it 's an interesting dilemma I mean, I think one of the reasons this film has had the longevity is because they didn 't make a sequel i mean I think that 's one of the things that um, you know, when they're thinking about you know remaking RoboCop or remaking Total Recall or sequelizing Blade Runner, you know most of these are failures. Actually, you know it doesn't matter. There's so much money in the international box office right. that you you always make money. Right. So the problem is there's no penalty for bad ideas and lack of originality in Hollywood. That is an easy one because 
What Hollywood does, like the Terrell Corporation, is they just build brands and they, um, they ex- exploit brands. And Blade Runner is a brand. And even if it's a terrible movie, it's going to have a huge opening weekend. And that's really all that really matters because it's enough then to get it into its cable and pay TV and every other rights they need to sell. So there's a huge amount of interest in making Blade Runner 2, even if it's a big steaming pile. So the fact of the matter is, is that this is where we are with it. And so I've always loved all these different versions because um, as much as some of them I love, I actually really appreciate. And if you haven't seen the one with the, the monotonous um, Deckard narration, I would highly suggest you at least listen to yes. it. Get a flavor for how people saw it originally because... Um, in another series we have here called Future of the Past, we always deal with archival film. And the real question we ask is, what's the original experience of Blade Runner? And what you got tonight was not the original experience of Blade Runner. You got the 2007 version of Blade Runner. Um, the original experience of Blade Runner is the one that Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford hated with the voiceover narration that is kind of more film noirish in its own right. way. Right. So if you're thinking about neo-noir, that's the one you ought to return to, having said that. Um, it's not the one the director would have intended. It's got a lot of problems. But it's also one that because of that monotony of the narration, people have said that almost in itself proves that Deckard's a replicant because there's no emotion in the na- voiceover. So it, there's different ways to read these things. And I think that's why looking at film as the studios and directors revise these things can be very um, exciting because you can see all the different changes. Now, Many of you who've seen the changes that George Lucas have made in Star Wars might find that to be more problematic. But Blade Runner has had a very different history in that it has almost been shifting um, from the very first years after its release. Right. Right. Okay. I think that this is it for us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.